You know, I remember in the 1950s seeing a very influential film, at least for me, called Destination Moon. The premise? Humans go to the moon. Well, seemed absolutely unbelievable at the time. But you know what? Within two decades, it had actually happened. Sometimes science fiction actually gets it right. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. We don't know exactly what the future of science and technology holds, but we do know that some developments have Americans worried. Recent Pew surveys find that the majority are uneasy about the emergence of advanced artificial intelligence and of using genetic engineering to correct for anything other than serious congenital disease. But these technologies and others don't have to be threatening or uncontrolled. We all have a stake in the responsible development. And while that's a lot to contemplate, luckily we can have fun doing so by letting science fiction film start the conversation. In this episode, grab a bowl of popcorn and travel forward in time through film with the author of a book about how today's emerging scientific developments could shape tomorrow for you, your children, and your grandchildren. It's sci-fi future. The menacing growl of a hungry T-Rex ushered in the dark side of gene tinkering in the film Jurassic Park. Based on the book by Michael Crichton, the adventure thriller delivered a message about greed, ambition, and human folly, says the author of Films from the Future, the Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. He says that its themes are more relevant today than when the movie was made 25 years ago. When Jurassic Park was made back in 1993, the ability to engineer the genome was largely science fantasy. Over the last few years, though, we've developed an ability not only to understand the genetic code, but to precisely engineer it. And this is opening up whole new avenues of how we can rethink and redesign living organisms. Hi, I'm Andrew Maynard. I'm a physicist and I'm a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. All right. Well, before we discuss Jurassic Park and other science fiction films, Andrew, make a case for us. I mean, why should we turn to science fiction film to explore our relationship with emerging technologies or science? I mean, I don't turn to Westerns to learn about the beef industry. Really good question. And, and of course, science fiction movies are a really bad guide to science and technology. They inevitably get things horribly wrong. What is really interesting, though, and what fascinates me is that because these are stories about people and technology, they can offer some really intriguing insights into that relationship, that social side of technology, how people respond to new technologies and react to them, whether that's things going right or, more often than not, things going horribly wrong. The subtitle of your book captures that. The subtitle is The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. So the idea is that there are moral complexities in these films that explore how we should be addressing this science and technology. There often are, and I, I'm not sure many science fiction um, scriptwriters do this intentionally. Some of them obviously do, but usually they're just out to tell a good story. But the reality is that the essence of a good story is talking about how people behave and how people think and feel and react. And because of this, a lot of these, these narratives in these movies can actually illuminate things that are sometimes hard to see in our relationship with technology. 
All right, so we're talking about the morality, not of the films themselves. Uh, of course, that could be questioned. You're right. <laughs> when, when I look at the price of popcorn, whenever I go to one of these films, uh-huh. there's something immoral there. But we're talking about the moral implications of the themes of the film. That's right. So the films are, are effectively sort of acting as a, a guide to help us understand the world we live in now. All right. Now, we are about to talk about Jurassic Park, but the other films that we talk about may not be as well known. And in fact, you say they may not even make anyone's top 10 science fiction list. Yep. Why did you include these films? So when I set out to write the book, I really wanted to tell a story about our relationship with technology through sci-fi movies, asking this big question about how we do this responsibly. If we're beginning to manipulate what I refer to as the base code of everything, there are some potentially horrendous consequences of getting it wrong. So I wanted to explore this idea of how do we work out what are the things that we probably shouldn't be doing and how do we work out how to develop these new technologies responsibly. And that's where this slightly sort of strange and eclectic set of movies came in to tell that story. Those are pretty ponderous themes. I have to ask, Andrew, are you a fun person to go to the movies with? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'd like to think so, but it's surprising how few people want to join me at the movies. But yeah, there is another side to this. So I hate boring movies. So this probably partially answers your question, Molly. I actually want to go to the movies to enjoy it and to be entertained and to, to be enthralled by them. So you'll actually see a lot of these movies are fun movies. They're they're not the really dreary 1970s sci-fi movies. Uh, Let alone the 1950s movies, which uh, tended to be pretty dystopian. Uh, Right. But let's get back to Jurassic Park, because Jurassic Park, I considered it a fun movie. What could be more fun than a bunch of critters gone wild, right? And, And everybody's favorite terrible thunder lizards gone crazy. I mean, what's the moral there? It sounds like there are some things man was not intended to do. So Jurassic Park is is a great movie, and I was amazed at just how good it was when I went back to watch it multiple times. But of course, it's a movie that has got a, a deeply embedded moral lesson about the dangers of messing with what we don't understand. If I may, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. It's a film about um, a super wealthy entrepreneur who wants to build the best theme park ever. And he teams up with scientists who have discovered that they can extract dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes that have been caught in amber back from prehistoric times. And they can use that DNA to recreate dinosaurs. And he uses these to populate the park. And of course, everything goes horribly wrong. The exhibits start eating people. And you have this tale about just because you can recreate dinosaurs doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. I I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't start to think if they should. The amazing thing is, back in 1993, this was just speculative science fiction. These days, we're getting closer to being able to do this, not with dinosaurs because we can't actually extract that that prehistoric DNA, but with other species. The film predicted the de-extinction movement, or at least the de-extinction movement came about since the film was released. And there right. is a project now to bring back the woolly mammoth, for example. It's called... The Woolly Mammoth Revival Project, it's led by geneticist George Church, and this is actually happening now. It's quite incredible, isn't it, that, yes, 
again, 1993, when this, this film was made, this was just total fantasy. And now people are seriously trying to bring back these animals. So that the Woolly Mammoth Project, and it, it's part of a, a Siberian project called Pleistocene Park. I mean, almost intentionally, you've got that, that comparison with Jurassic Park and Pleistocene Park, where they're trying to recreate this era from 10 to 30,000 years ago by recreating these animals that once used to roam across the tundra. The downside is George Church and others have discovered that it's not quite as easy as they thought. Um, they originally thought they could extract DNA from a, a frozen woolly mammoth and just recreate it. Not that easy. But what they're doing is they're using that possibility to take an existing animal. I think it's it's Asian elephants to effectively modify the genetic code of this animal so it begins to look and behave more like its woolly mammoth relatives. You know, what's funny about you saying that is now we're in a place where maybe we can receive that news and not be shocked by it and not ask the question, why? Why bring back the woolly mammoth? Right. Certainly that the narrative that has been spun is that these large animals that, that used to exist in the tundra were really good at, at maintaining that, that environment. And as we grapple with global warming, this is one of the ways that people believe that they can actually maintain the stability of that environment. I wonder if we can talk for a moment about the ethical challenges presented by this idea of a rewilding or de-extinction. Is the only challenge, Andrew, the only moral question is whether or not we can control the process? That seems very limited in scope when we talk about ethics. I actually think there is a bigger question around slippery slopes. So there's the ethics of it along the lines of, should we even be messing with the genetic code of life? Should we effectively be creating what are in essence brand new species because you can't reproduce something perfectly you always have to add additions to it so that that's a really complex ethical question but the slippery slope part of that is if we start doing it in places like um, bringing back the woolly mammoth what's to stop us then going on to the next thing and the next thing and at what point do you come to humans and messing around with the genetic code of humans in ways that are then heritable from generation to generation and that gets ethically incredibly complex. But let me provoke you a little bit, Andrew, on this, because uh, to me, there's there's a component of, I don't know what you would call it, maybe biological Ludditism or something in this, that, <laughs> you know, uh, nature has evolved this system that's so grand and so magnificent that any perturbation to it, including making the Anopheles mosquito extinct or something like that, right. should be viewed with suspicion. Personally, yeah. I would go to this Jurassic Park if it existed, <laughs> i got to tell you. Well, me too, I must confess. I think we have to be really careful that we don't allow our overactive imaginations putting barriers in, in the place of technological progress. And in many cases, I think we can see huge benefits from, from what we're doing, especially with genetic engineering, without undue downsides. At the same time, I think we have to be smart enough to think about the consequences so we can actually work out how to avoid them and work our way around them. Well, that's a good setup for this next film because it is dark. It's called Never Let Me Go. I had not heard of this film, had you, Seth? Uh, no. Okay. It's a haunting film, and it has a slow, methodical pace that, and is quite moody. It's really the polar opposite of what happens mm -hmm. in the Jurassic Park series. But Never Let Me Go grapples with the consequences of similar technology, the technology that was used to recreate the dinosaurs, cloning. Provide us a synopsis of the film Never Let Me Go. 
So Never Let Me Go is, is based on the book of the same name by the British author Katsura Ishiguro. And it was never intended to be a science fiction book or movie. And it's a movie about three young school kids um, and as they grow up into early adulthood. And it starts off in an alternative past. It's set in 1980s um, England, and it looks very, very familiar to me. And it looks like these kids are just in a rather sort of posh private school until we begin to realize that there's something not quite right here. Do you know what happens to children when they grow up? No, you don't, because nobody knows. But with you, we do know. You will become adults, but only briefly. Before you're old, before you're even middle-aged, you will start to donate your vital organs that's what you're created to do. And as the story begins to evolve, we discover that they're actually clones and they've been produced for the sole reason of providing their organs as donors to keep other people alive. And sometime around your third or fourth donation, your short life will be complete. You have to know who you are and what you are. It's the only way you'll lead decent lives. And so what is so powerful about the movie is this is not a movie about the technology, but it's a movie about the consequences of society adopting a technology which they consider to be too important to fail. If you ask people to return to darkness, the days of lung cancer, breast cancer, motor neuron disease, they'll simply say no. And what we see is the absolutely devastating impact of society's adoption of this technology that treatment of these these clones and the the assumption within society that these clones do not have a soul they do not have value therefore it's okay to breed them and kill them it sounds like a a larger theme sacrificing the few for the benefit of uh, the many right and so to me this brings up a really interesting tension between the the individual and the value of the individual versus the value to society that they provide but the suspension of disbelief that i had to put in place for this film was the idea we could ever get to this point, Andrew, um, where you'd be sacrificing harvesting the organs from a group of people so that other people could live disease-free lives. So I I think you're partially right, uh, but actually it wouldn't surprise me if we did end up with a future like this. And the the reason I say that is, is you look at how we deal with people and technology now. It's amazing how frequently we turn a blind eye to uh, the social inequities that occur around technology. So, for instance, there have been reports out around how Amazon treats its employees or how it's thought about treating its employees. There was a big article about the idea of, of putting them in cages, which was dropped really fast. And so even though it's really shocking in Never Let Me Go, seeing that this society that is turning a blind eye to, to children being harvested for their organs, I don't think it's that far removed from how we behave these days. Yeah, I mean, the obvious rejoinder here is that you think that this is horrible. It's horrible because they are people. But if they were pigs being raised Mm -hmm. to harvest their organs for humans, which goes on now, right? Or, or, uh, I don't know, I suppose it's less shocking if you just build the organ in the lab. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. So this is a matter of degree, not of... Substance, if you will. I might disagree there, but that's where it gets ethically really interesting. So, So the question comes, when does somebody have value as a person? When do they have what we might call personhood, which is in some ways sacrosanct? So 
most people would argue, not everybody, but most people would argue that there's a difference between slaughtering a pig for its organs and slaughtering a human for their organs. But the more you look at this and the more you think about how we can engineer either people or organs or animals, the blurrier that line becomes and the more important these, these discussions around what is right and what is not right become. Especially when we consider how intelligent pigs are and what we're learning about the intelligence right. of other animals. Yeah, and, and that, that's why I said not everybody would agree here. And so one of the things that, that I think it's worth thinking about is imagine in 30, 50 years' time, people looking back and being horrified that we would even consider to grow and slaughter animals. Um, that may or may not happen. But I can imagine a future where that does happen. We suddenly realize that what has been normal now definitely is not normal in the future. And we might want to reflect on where genetic technology is now, the promises we made to ourselves, and some recent developments that involve CRISPR. So CRISPR technology can be used to edit genomes very precisely and quickly. Um, and for a long time, we said, uh, scientists said and the public said, well, we'll never do this on human embryos. And then in 2017, a Chinese scientist claimed that he had gone ahead, used CRISPR to eliminate a gene in a human embryo and claimed that that, that developed into a live birth. So now, mm. we're, now we're here at a place we said we never wanted to go to, and it raises big moral questions. Yes. So it's amazing how fast we've come to this point. But it also raises some really interesting questions. So now, without a doubt, we can use CRISPR gene editing to alter the genetic code of an embryo in ways which that is then heritable to the, to the next generation. We can do that. What we don't know is what the consequences are. We don't know how to do it well. So that raises all sorts of questions about how far we should be going, what we should be doing when it's easier to break the machine, if you like, the machine being the embryo in, in this sense, than actually make it better. In the case of that Chinese scientist who was trying to engineer children who would not contract HIV, that was the work of a lone scientist. And the question is, do such scientists who, after all, they're only trying to learn things about nature, do they have some obligation to also consider the moral implications of their work? We'll discuss this and uh, the technology and morality of other science fiction movies with physicist Andrew Maynard in a moment. Including an old film that I guess many people have not seen. And Andrew, I wonder if you could give us a tease for this film. People yes. can guess. See if people can guess it. So it's a film that's about creating clothes that never need to be replaced, never rip, and it's involving a famous actor who really made his name in the 1970s. Mr. Hoskins, it's worked! I've done it! The radioactive groups and the fiber-forming molecules haven't catalyzed the internal rearrangement, not in the least! I thought the polymerization would It's sci-fi from the future on Big Picture Science. We've been taking a peek into the future with physicists and professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University, Andrew Maynard. And Andrew, before we go any farther, what does that mean to say, as, as has been said, that you're an expert on the responsible development of emerging technologies? Very simply, it, it means that pretty much all of my work revolves around asking questions associated with how we can do technology innovation, how we can do science in ways that benefits as many people as possible without causing undue harm. 
Well, another one of your many hats, if this can be called a hat, uh, you are also an unrepentant science fiction film buff. Is that Mm -hmm. accurate to say? It is. Okay. How much time do you think you spend watching science fiction films? (laughs) Well, see, because I had to watch them for work and for this book, um, more hours than I actually (laughs) care to actually name, but a lot. Because you had to, right? I absolutely had to. to. It was so difficult. (laughs) Well, your book is film from the future, and it explores some of the most compelling issues surrounding emerging science and technologies. We're now going to continue the discussion about the role of the individual scientist. We touched on it a little bit earlier. Now, this is a scientist who takes action, uh, believes he or she is in the right, and does not consult not only his or her colleagues, but the rest of society. The theme of the lone scientist comes up often in the films that you include in your book, but also in science fiction in general. Why is this Mm -hmm. an important theme to consider? On two fronts, I I think. So first of all, it creates a really strong narrative structure and narrative tension in books where you've got the the individual scientist bucking trends and and doing stuff which is out of sync with everybody else. And, And to be honest, this actually doesn't happen that often in the real world simply because most developments, most breakthroughs come from the larger number of, of scientists, people actually working on them. At the same time, you do see in the real world as well as in science fiction these prominent figures that are really pushing the boundaries of what we can do through science and technology. Now, one example of this is a film that didn't actually garner high critical praise, but nevertheless addresses an important issue. Maybe you can summarize the plot for the film adaptation of Dan Brown's Inferno. Yeah, so Inferno, I'm sure, is going to be quite controversial as a a film in this book, both because it wasn't a great movie and it doesn't really feel like science fiction. Um, But it's an intriguing movie. So this is a movie that's about a scientist, a brilliant scientist and an incredibly wealthy scientist and entrepreneur that suddenly realizes that the world is heading for disaster. And it's not climate change, but it's overpopulation. And he is absolutely certain that unless the world does something about overpopulation, we're going to crash and human society is going to burn. But he can't persuade anybody to take substantive action, so he decides to go it alone. There's a switch. If you throw it, half the people on Earth will die. But if you don't, the human race will be extinct in a hundred years. What will you do? And he creates a virus. He genetically engineers a virus that is designed to kill 50% of the world's population. And in his mind, he says, this is dreadful, but it's like a surgeon excising a cancer. It's a necessary evil. And the movie is all about the scientist creating this virus and inexplicably hiding it somewhere in the world with a timer set to release. And then the hero of the story, um, Dan Brown's Robert Langdon, following a trail of clues to try and find the virus and prevent its release. So it's largely a time-limited journey to try and prevent this horrendous Armageddon happening with this engineered virus. The usual cinematic race against time. I can't help but think that this is an echo of the 1968 book by Paul Ehrlich, The Population Bomb, which kind of exploded in the book market. 
That's exactly right. Um, and in fact, the whole storyline in Inferno draws on Paul Ehrlich's apocalyptic vision of the world going to rack and ruin because of overpopulation. This came out of the 1960s. It was very, very sensational. And in the book, the scientist um, Zobrist takes this idea and takes it to an extreme. I don't think many people would contest the premise here that we're running through natural resources, I mean, including useful metals, all sorts of stuff. And uh, Mm -hmm. as the population continues to grow, I mean, this is going to be a problem. Everybody sees this problem. But many people would say, well, culling the herd may not be the preferred solution. But tell (laughs) us, how how does the scientist Zopers or the engineer propose to cull the herd? I'll just jump in and say there are actually two ways. One is how the film addressed that, right, Andrew? And then one is how Mm -hmm. the book did. Yeah. So in the film, he he engineers this virus using uh, what we call gain-of-function research. So you make a virus more virulent, and he designs it to kill effectively every other person on Earth. So basically culling 50% of the population. And of course, the, the problem with that, apart from you're killing people, is nobody has a choice on who dies and who doesn't. In the book, it's very, very different. He creates the virus to render every third person infertile. And those that remain fertile, they pass on this trait to the next generation. So in the next generation, every third person is infertile. And what you find is, in the book, because nobody dies, and yet you have a mechanism to slowly reduce the population over time, you have a very different sense of who this person was and why he was doing what he was doing. So it, in fact, was a more moral solution in some sense. It was just a gene drive on humanity, right? It, is that it, more it moral, was. though? Is that but, more moral? Well, so, so I, I don't think it is. Um, I mean, it, it feels better. But on the other hand, you're still not giving these people choices. And if you've spoken to anybody that's desperate for a child and told them that somebody else was going to decide whether they can have that child or not, they would tell you very clearly this is not a moral decision. Andrew, this story, Inferno, it's science fiction, but uh, there is some real science in the film. You write about the actual success some scientists have had at weaponizing the the genome, in this case the Mm -hmm. H5N1 code, otherwise known as the avian flu, uh, which was presented as a proof of concept in two major scientific journals. Hey, here's how to take a virus and make it even more lethal. That sounds like the people who publish uh, designs for H-bombs or whatever. Uh, But is it really that easy? Can it be done at the local biohackers clubhouse? Well, and we should also say why the editors of those journals decided to publish that. And it wasn't to encourage people to go ahead and and do some genetic tinkering to create a more lethal strain of flu. It was to let the world know that this could be done. That's right. That was a very complex decision. Um, And on one side, you had the question of, are people going to misuse this information? On the other side, scientists felt that they needed to know that this was possible and other people were going to try and do it. But the reality is it's really hard to take an organism like a virus um, or a bacterium and make it more lethal through genetic engineering. It can be done, but it's difficult, requires a lot of science, um, a lot of facilities. On the other hand, with emerging techniques like CRISPR, it's getting easier to do. So it's not beyond the realms of belief that sometime in the future, someone in a local community, bio lab, or even in their garage or their kitchen will be able to do this. Andrew, earlier in the show, you teased a film to see if any of our listeners could guess the title. And I think you'd have to be a really serious film buff to do so, but still. What did you say is the clue? Can you recall? 
Yeah, the clue was a British film. The storyline revolved around creating clothes that um, didn't wear out and were stain resistant. And the main actor, the, the main character, had a, a link to fame of fortune in the 1970s with a very famous movie. Mr. Stratton, what's the matter? Mr. Hoskins, it's worked! I've done it! Not. The radioactive groups and the fiber-forming molecules haven't catalyzed the internal rearrangement. Not in the least. I thought the polymerization would be aesthetically hindered, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Where are my notes? Where are my notes? Mr. Stratton! And that voice belongs to the actor Alec Guinness, and he appeared in the 1951 Ealing comedy The Man in the White Suit. Well, I didn't see that film when it came out, even though I... I really? No, I did. <laughs> yeah, but don't laugh, because I saw other films. I saw Destination Moon. It was made in the same year, so Well, and the go. Ealing comedies were quite popular. I, my Incredibly mom would send me popular. to all the British comedies. I saw them mm-hmm. all. The carry-on, fill-in-the-blank. Well, all that's, right. that's what's funny about this film, I mean, no pun intended, is that it has these comedic elements, but it's addressing this idea, again, of the lone scientist who's driven by his vision. It is. But this time, he isn't trying to create harm. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. <laughs> no. So so this is a, a story about a, a scientist who is absolutely sure he's on the cusp of creating a, a new polymer that is incredibly strong and incredibly stain resistant. And he has a vision of using it to create clothes that never stain and never wear out. He's out to make the world a better place through his invention. But then he uh, incurs the wrath not only of the captains of industry who don't like this idea of creating a material that would put them out of business because you wouldn't need to produce any other materials. And then all the people working in the textile industry themselves also do not want this new fabric, even though it might make their lives easier. It would also put them out of a job. So um, the character played by Alec Guinness sees that the entire village is upset with him and, and wants to stop his technology. And, and that's why I love this this film so much, because his heart is in the right place, but he is so short-sighted. He has no idea about the, the social and political landscape that he's doing his science in. Sydney, we have to wait till the right moment. Why not now? To announce it right away might upset the delicate balance of the market. Would it? But what happens when you begin to sell the stuff? Leave these problems to us, Mr. Stratton. You are going ahead with production. Young man, we need control of this discovery. To suppress it. Yes. So he's completely blindsided when, as you say, the captains of industry realize that they're going to be out of business if people aren't going to be buying clothes anymore because they last forever. The workers at the factory realize they're also going to be out of business. And so he suddenly realizes that what he thought was a great idea, because he didn't bother talking to anybody is actually not going to be accepted by anybody that he thought would be accepting it. Do you think this argument would fly today, Andrew? Because, I mean, you could make a similar argument probably for almost every technological advance, right? Hey, this cell phone will allow you to do this, that, and the other. On the other hand, you'll never talk to another live person again. So, <laughs> yeah. So it plays out almost every day. And and this is what intrigues me here. And just to give you an example of that, I'm sitting here just outside Phoenix where we've had companies testing their self-driving cars, companies like Waymo. Um, and so every day you see these companies cars on the streets and driving themselves. There have been people here out on the streets actually trying to interfere with these because even though the technology is sound, people aren't sure they want that technology in their lives. And this comes about because technologists and engineers don't always think about asking people what they want. Can I propose an alternative moral to the story mm-hmm. of the man in the white suit? That he was up against the machine of 
profit and industry. So really what he was displacing were these these money engines that depend on us buying new clothes and material objects. I mean, that's really what he was up against was capitalism because he had discovered something that actually for poor people or people who don't have a lot of resources could be very useful. And and yeah. that wasn't emphasized. So I wonder if it's that he was misguided. I think he was actually appropriately guided, but he was crushed by capitalism. I think, yes, you can certainly take that reading. And I, I think that that's... A- really important conclusion to draw from it. However, I would also say that the scientist Sidney Stratton's problem was he thought he knew what was good for people without ever bothering to ask them. So even if you sort of take the the anti-capitalist narrative here, which I think works, he could have done so much more if it have actually talk to people, engage with the people that he thought he was helping rather than have this vision of them in his mind that was nothing like the real world. Well, we've discussed who is making the choices about our science and technological futures. But what happens when those making the decisions are no longer humans? We'll be back with a physicist who has seen the future, in film at least, Andrew Maynard. Are you willing to stick around, Andrew, as our conversation gets an upgrade to super intelligence? Absolutely going to stick around. It's sci-fi from the future on Big Picture Science. We've been talking about future technological and scientific scenarios with physicist and professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University, Andrew Maynard. And so far, we've discussed scenarios that involve the manipulation of biology, with the exception of the materials science-themed The Man in the White Suit. But now we're entering the age of the machine and films that Dr. Maynard discusses in his book, Films from the Future, that address human-machine augmentation and also AI. And Andrew, these are themes that are in science fiction, but these are also emerging technologies and they're all around us, right? They absolutely are. If you look at everything from biology, what people are doing to enhance their body, to the way people are beginning to increasingly incorporate machines and machine technologies into their body. We're getting mighty close to a change in how we actually develop and use technologies to enhance ourselves. Can you give a quick example of that, of how people are using, incorporating machines into their body? So in, in terms of the machines, I mean, there's the obvious stuff we know. I and mean, if you look at ICDs that, that are used to prevent you having a heart attack or to reboot your heart, I mean, that, that's an embedded technology that has been around for a while. But you've got people playing around with things like putting RFID tags under their skin in their bodies, actually injecting these tags in so that they can automatically open doors and buy stuff. Um, and that's only the beginning. You've also got areas such as prosthetics, where we're now developing advanced prosthetics, which in some cases seem to give give people more abilities than the limbs that they replace. 
Well, some of the films that you discuss, Andrew, treat the possibility of human augmentation. And in the film Limitless, this is done through a drug. Uh, The drug is called NZT, I think, and it unlocks the cognitive potential of the protagonist who is played by Bradley Cooper. I wonder if you can give us just a quick synopsis of what happens when he takes this drug and in what ways this is human augmentation. Sure. So this is a film about a failing writer who I identified with very strongly as I was, I must confess, struggling to write this book in this particular chapter. So his his life is a mess. And as he hits rock bottom, he, he bumps into a former brother-in-law who gives them this new pill, NZT, and he says it's going to transform your life. This is an exclusive product. It's coming on stream next year. They've had clinical trials and it's FDA approved. What's in it? They've identified these receptors in the brain that activate specific circuits. And you know how they say that we can only access 20% of our brain? Well, what this does, it lets you access all of it. So Eddie takes this and he suddenly realizes that everything gets better. His brain works better. It's not that he gets more intelligent. It's just that he can recall information that's stored in his brain more effectively. He can piece together disparate pieces of information. And as a result, he begins to succeed in every part of his life. It transforms him. It turns him into enhanced Eddie, which is where the enhancement comes, and helps him unlock his full potential. But of course, as you would expect, there are downsides. There's no such thing as a free lunch here. And the film is really an exploration of what it means to enhance an ability using chemicals, using pharmaceuticals in this way. And it's actually quite an ambivalent film because it doesn't either lead you to the conclusion that this is a bad idea or a good idea, but it shows how it plays out with this one particular person's life. Because at the end of the film, he stays on the drug. It helps him. He does. He, he actually works out how to get around the side effects, um, and you're left with the idea that he's actually ramping up to run for president. But, you know, another approach here, I mean, other than, the, if you will, the, the wet solution, we'll just pour these compounds into your bloodstream. Uh, what about enhancing your performance by merging you at least a little bit with a machine? We'll just put some chips into your head. This is something that a lot of people have been excited about for quite some time, whether it's at a seemingly superficial level of of putting these RFID tags under the skin, or you look at someone like the athlete Oscar Pistorius, who was famous for having his cheetah legs. These were sort of running legs that people worried actually gave him an advantage, even though um, the, the last sort of really important race he ran, he only came second in the 2012 Olympics. Then you've got people that are really working on things such as brain computer interface faces, which really gets intimate when it comes to enhancement. And a few years ago, Elon Musk launched the company Neuralink, where inspired by science fiction, this is a company that's trying to create a wireless network that goes inside your brain that allows you to connect to computers and ultimately the internet um, as a way of fully enhancing your brain electronically. And you write that in the movie Transcendence, Johnny Depp plays a scientist and um his mind and his entire being are loaded up into a machine. So that's the ultimate fusing of biology and machine. So the question is whether you're augmenting your biology through a pill or through a machine or you just give yourself over to the machines completely, if it's a way of bringing out the best in you, what's wrong with it? Really good question. And I don't think there are any good answers here. One thing that it does do, though, is it shines a searing light on on what we mean by humanity and personhood. If you continue to enhance yourself artificially, at what point 
if at all, do you stop being human? Um, I would actually argue that you don't reach that point. But we know that that humans are, are very sort of territorial in terms of who they accept and who they don't accept. And we already know that if people begin to see you as different because you've used technology to enhance you, they can very easily begin to exclude you and discriminate against you. And to me, that's the bigger question we've got to answer. As people begin to play around with these augmentations, what's that going to mean in terms of how we behave towards other people, what our attitudes are like towards them, whether we're inclusive or exclusive, whether there's another form of discrimination coming along. I, I kind of wonder again about this haves and have-nots that uh, that discussion seems to accompany every major technological advance, right? Your cell mm. phones came in and you know some people are going to be connected and other people are not going to be connected. Uh, but in fact, two-thirds of the world now owns a cell phone. So these, these problems seem to go away. But that's a I, cell phone, Seth. That's not having access to something <laughs> well, like no, a, no, no, but, a, a but, computer chip in your brain but or somebody's But you could have made drugs. all these same arguments when the cell phone came out. I'm sure you could have done it. And I think I think you can. Um, but also, I, I think there are some nuances with, with new technologies. And this is where the, the discussion is so important. So, for example, you, you go back to pharmaceuticals um, and ask the question, what if there was a pill there that for 12 hours or 24 hours substantively boosted your intelligence? Um, but it costs quite a lot of money to purchase. Now, say that in academia, so deal with my world, there are professors that are popping these pills in order to put grants in, and they're getting a far higher success rate in terms of getting their grants to the extent that people that aren't popping the pills are failing and they're not being able to succeed in their, their profession. How do you deal with a situation like that? Do you say that you lower the cost of these pills so everybody can use them? Then what do you do with the people that say, I'd rather rely on my own capabilities rather than my chemically enhanced abilities? It begins to get complex quite fast. Okay, so we've been talking about how high-tech might be able to enhance your cognitive abilities, but humans may not always be in the loop in uh, some of these uh, future scenarios. Uh, we seem to be busy inventing our successors, producing artificial intelligence, which at the moment builds your car or uh, does uh, something else rather repetitive, but in the future might do all the things you do. One popular film and a critically received film dealt with this. Maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, what was going on in Ex Machina, Andrew. Yeah, so Ex Machina is another movie with uh, a lone genius, a guy that actually made his money with a, a search engine like Google and decides to sequester himself away and create the perfect artificial intelligence. And the movie is about him bringing in somebody else notionally to test his AI. His AI looks like a female robot called Ava. And as the movie progresses, we have this really interesting dance um, between this person brought in, Caleb, starting to try and work out whether Ava has got human-like potential or abilities, and then the table's turning and Ava beginning to manipulate her interrogator and use it as a way of escaping from what is essentially a prison that she's in. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days... You're going to be the human component in a Turing test. You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. What do we make of the fact, Andrew, that many of these lone scientists are male in many of these films? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I don't know. Um, 
it would be really tempting to say that they draw on what we see in real life, or maybe they're associated with technology stereotypes. I, I hope they're not, but I actually have a sneaking suspicion that they are. But I would hate to go too far down that that rabbit hole, especially as you begin to speculate around whether it's really the male entrepreneurs that are the problem here. Well, you know what? It's okay because Ava in the film Ex Machina gets her revenge at the end, doesn't she? She does, and she's <laughs> rather wonderful at it. This is kind of a, a two-hour touring test on film, is it not? Uh, you know, she successfully seduces him. She wins him over totally. I mean... You know, you, you have to say that the stronger intellect here, or the more supple intellect here, is the machine. Absolutely. So, so the thing that really intrigues me about this is um, it's almost like a, an anti-narrative to the, the superintelligence narrative we, we have at the moment and that, that says that we're going to get to a point where machines, computers are so smart that they decide the thing they really can't stand is humans and they get rid of us. Instead, Ava isn't a, a superintelligence. But what she has is she has such an intimate understanding of human biases and human heuristics, effectively how we think and behave, that she can manipulate humans without them being able to resist that. And we see exactly that happen with the manipulation of, of Caleb, where she works out exactly how to press his buttons, because she understands emotionally and psychologically how he works to achieve her ends. And she does that incredibly successfully because she's not bound by the same rules and constraints, the, the same mental biases and cognitive biases as her humans are. If she were solely human, if she were a biological woman, then we'd have no problem with her fighting for her freedom. But because she's a creation um, and she's an example of artificial intelligence, that raises the question of whether or not she has a right to be free or has a or whether or not we can sympathize with her right to be free. And that brings up the question of whether or not artificial intelligence one day will have rights. Right. Yeah. And if you talked at scientists and, and engineers in the field of AI, most of them will tell you that we're a long, long way from that. I and mean, we're, we're just sort of playing around with bits and pieces at the moment rather than actually creating entities that, that could have that consciousness. And yet, at some point, we're going to have to grapple with this. And I think that this is what films like Ex Machina do. They create a mirror to our future and ask, when we reach this point, how are we going to think about these possibilities? How are we going to deal with them? Where does the morality lie in determining whether humans are better than machines that have consciousness? Or is there some concept of personhood that transcends just the biological humanity that we have? And, you know, the people who'd say, oh, don't worry about artificial intelligence because we'll make sure that it doesn't do anything nasty. We'll, uh, we'll instruct them on Asimov's laws of robots, you know, that right. kind of thing. Right. But, but, I mean, that's kind of nonsensical because, uh, you know, you'll use Ava to design her successor and pretty soon you have a machine that knows nothing about how it should treat humans. That that's right, I and mean, you can you can tell the machine um, we want you to obey these laws. The machine is likely to turn around and say, "Not likely." <laughs> well, Andrew, let's provide some final thoughts about science fiction film as we wrap up here, because a lot of the films in your book, and in fact, I think all of them, and certainly all the films we've been discussing in this episode, are dystopic, and. Mm -hmm. You might be left with the impression after watching them that we are careening on a dark and dehumanizing path towards something pretty undesirable. Um, so what is the advice that you give to us so that we don't end up despairing? So I, I actually think that there is a very positive message to come out of this. So yes, um, in every film, things go wrong because 
that's the narrative tension in, in the storytelling. But it's not always a dystopic future you see. More importantly than that, though, if we're actually going to navigate towards a positive future, say, navigate towards the light as we're looking forward, we've got to be able to understand where the dark is. And what I think these films do in exactly the same way as the best storytelling has done over the ages, including going back to grim fairy tales, is it gives us a glimpse into what the future might be like if we don't act responsibly, if we don't think about what we're doing, so we can avoid those futures and actually build something which is positive for people. Andrew Maynard, thanks so very much for taking us into the future during this episode. Thank you. Andrew Maynard is a physicist and he is a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. His book that took us into the future during this episode is Films from the Future, the Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. Well, looking back on all this, what I see is the bigger picture is that, you know, you think of sci-fi films as a genre where you get all this flashy hardware and a view in the, into the, what the world will be like a century hence or more, but there's really more to it than simply this showing you the future. Such as? Well, it's showing you the implications of all this stuff. You know, uh, it shows you the social side of technology. Scientists today, they're kind of modern wizards. They're, they're modern magicians. But for whom are they working their magic? That's the question. Are scientists just here to set the stage for the human drama? If so, do we have any input on the script? Seth, you have provided input to some science fiction films. Yeah, about a half dozen or so. But they don't ask me about these issues. They don't ask me to comment on the moral implications of what's happening. They want technical information from me, how to get it right, that and, kind of and thing. And do they listen to you? Uh, 30% of the time. <laughs> Thank you to the members of our team whose talents are not fiction. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Sci-Fi Future. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. No single company could possibly do it, but combined American industry could put a rocket on the moon within a year. What do you say, Jim? Do we go to lunch or do we go to the moon?